Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD plus even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD Plus. Check out Qualia NAD Plus risk-free for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD Plus. It's what I use. Today's cool fact of the day is that a lot of vegan products aren't actually vegan. Most bread you buy at source today has a preservative known as calcium caseinate in it, which is a byproduct of dairy manufacturing. Now, I wouldn't eat bread because it has wheat and because caseinate isn't good for you, but vegans maybe ought not to eat most bread either. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. We're here today with Linda Bernardi, who's an author, entrepreneur, speaker, and innovation provocateur. And she's here today to talk about constructive disruption. She's got leadership experience spanning more than two decades and she's really interested in promoting innovative, disruptive ideas and technologies. And she's actually the author of an upcoming book she's going to be telling us about. She's helped organizations and people break free of their comfort zone, defy conventional wisdom, and shatter outdated paradigms. So you can figure out that's why we would invite her to be on the show. Shattering outdated paradigms isn't just fun. It's actually profitable, too. Uh, and as the creator of the Bernardi Leadership Institute. She's engaged with companies all around the globe as a speaker and coach and consultant. 
Uh, she's an active entrepreneur. She's a technologist and an educator, an investor, and a board member. In fact, she and I have a lot in common that way. And she's the founder of Stratera Partners, which is a technology strategy consulting firm. On top of all of this, she's got a master's degree in applied statistics from UCLA, and she just became a vinyasa yoga instructor right in the midst of launching her new book. And we found that particularly interesting on the blog, how high-performance people like Linda can actually find a way to work in that side of things as well in order to increase their own performance. Linda, welcome. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much for that wonderful introduction. Well, tell us a little bit about yourself and your unique philosophy of constructive disruption. Why do people need to know about this? Well, so my philosophy has always been, unless we disrupt and disrupt in the most positive sense, we are not going to be able to innovate. And that really started when I joined BBN as think tank right out of graduate school, where we had about six, 7,000 scientists, and we effectively looked at you know, solving very complex problems. And to do that, we first had to start from scratch. So when you try to solve a problem and you have to go from a particular paradigm, you're going to be highly limited. So we had to look at every problem, whether it was way back looking at how do we design ARPANET, which became the Internet, how do we design the first switch for routers, or how do we design the first operating system. It really requires that you start from scratch. And unless we do that, we are highly limited. And so uh, when, when there is this concern about disruption change, it forces people to start from a point that they're at And it's very difficult to truly innovate unless you're willing to look at any problem that you're starting from the beginning. So constructive disruption, or what I call disruption, is necessary in order for us to innovate. Whether we're innovating in technology, whether we're innovating in our life, whether we're innovating in our health, we have to be able to sort of embrace the possibilities that disruption brings about. Okay, so walk us through what a a constructive disruption uh, would look like. You know, if we kind of just, um, instead of calling it constructive disruption, just call it disruption, and we take the example, I'll give a couple of examples, one that works and the other one that doesn't. And, And using an example that a lot of the listeners might identify with, if we use the example of Apple, when Apple was a computer company, And Jobs came out with trying to sort of introduce music with the iPod, and it completely disrupted the music paradigm, right? Because prior to that, we had had Netscape that had failed. Everybody thought that was insane. Here you are, a computer company, really entering the music world. You completely disrupted your business model because iPad had nothing to do with computers. The rest of it is history, right? It changed the entire way that music got accessed globally. And right when you're doing that, Apple decided, well, we're going to become a phone company. Well, that's disrupting really my computer business and my music business. Now I'm going to go after the phone business. And, of course, the phone companies, my big telco clients thought that was insane because a computer-slash-music company couldn't be a phone company. And right when that was done, you decide, I'm going to enter another field, a tablet, and I'm going to introduce the iPad. So, so you know, the, the, the story goes on, right? It's, it's when you make those massive changes where incredible stuff happens. If we look at another example where that failed, and, and that really is sad for me, and where you take Kodak, 
And the world was evolving, right? We were going to digital and Kodak was holding on to its business model and wasn't innovating. Imagine what would have happened a decade ago if Kodak would have said, we're going to this digital world. How are we going to play in it? And imagine the possibility of there being the Kodak platform and the Kodak possibility. And if you look at, say, Amazon and look at what Amazon did when when it came out with EC2, when it had a very strong retail business, right? It came up with something that had nothing to do with that business, or it went to retail when it was having a very successful book business. So we can come up with a lot of examples where unless we really are willing to look at something new, ground up, that what we, if, if all we're doing is massaging the existing paradigms, we are really not going to be able to make those massive changes that we need to make. Okay, that, that makes sense. You've also said if you want to be successful, get ready to be uncomfortable. So why is this disruption uncomfortable for people, both just individual people or even for organizations? Absolutely. So my book, Provokes That, um, is coming out in a couple of weeks. The first thing that it says is be prepared to be uncomfortable. When I give lectures, the very first thing that I say is you're going to become very uncomfortable because In anything that we do as human beings, we need to believe that we're perfect and we need to hang on to those things that we do very well. And when somebody comes along and says, you know, there's another way of doing something or possibly the way that you're doing it is not the best way or there's a brand new thing we can go after because it's an unknown and because it disturbs the environment that you feel so comfortable with, whether you're an individual or whether you're a corporation, the first reaction is discomfort and, in some cases, extreme disdain, where I've had some clients who have been absolutely uncomfortable. We have finished the meeting. They have said we have nothing to do with each other. And as you can probably imagine, Dave, they are now my biggest customers. So the book actually goes through the five stages of rejection before we get into talking about how we're going to go ahead and disrupt. So I think it's just a natural human reaction to want to protect the thing we think we're very good in because we feel that that's being taken away or shattering. And in fact, it's when we embrace it that we become much stronger in what we're doing. Okay, that, that makes great sense. So then how, how do you go about introducing this disruption to people? And, and this is sort of a personal question. The, the nutritional stuff that we do on the Bulletproof Executive is disruptive. I, I'm telling people, well, I... I can eat 4,000 calories a day. I can eat a stick of butter a day. In fact, I do it on purpose, and all of my blood chemistry is better as a result of it, and here's why it works. And, mm-hmm. it, and it's absolutely disruptive to someone who's been eating you know, a bowl of sticks and twigs every morning for their life. <laughs> now, it, it, it's a question there, but some people go, oh, my God, that's stupid, and uh, you know, you're going to die, and we're all going to die, and, and it, it's no good. And then other people say, I just tried it, and I lost 20 pounds in a month, and I've never felt better. Mm-hmm. So what's the difference between those two personality types and how do you approach the people who are maybe change resistant? So it's interesting, right? I would say uh, what I have found is that everybody wants change, but there are levels and grades of appetite for change. Um, if, we took, if we talk about an individual level, I think it's because we have been taught these things, right? And so shattering that belief that if I eat a stick of butter a day, that's, of course, going to clog my arteries. Um, sometimes the same individuals aren't paralleling that, well, what am I doing to burn during the day, right? So, so if I'm not eating anything and I'm not working out in any way, 
then it really doesn't matter what I'm eating because my body's not burning. So when Dave says eat a stack of butter, he doesn't mean eat it and sit and watch TV. He means eat that and then change your lifestyle. So I think the issue is that deep down individuals have a discomfort about changing things. I'm finding that um, there are some individuals, hopefully over time less and less, and definitely far less in the younger, below 40 population than above, that embrace possibility. And when you do that, you're not, you don't have a preconceived notion about what the outcome needs to be. You're willing to experiment because you're intrigued. You want to challenge your body. Part of it is the appetite for challenge. Part of it is, frankly, lack of laziness. Because when you're proposing something, it requires that the other person has to take action. And action has an unknown, right? It's an experiment. And you have to be willing to do that experiment, maybe another, maybe another. And so at a personal level, I think that's what I encounter is that people are afraid of change. They're afraid of changing life routines. And, um, and that might be one of the reasons why people resist things. It's interesting that you, you sort of call out the difference uh, in age groups there. I, I've, I'm pushing, uh, pushing 40. I turned 39 in a couple of weeks. But I find that I'm spending a lot of time uh, on the Bulletproof Executive uh, with people who are you know, 10 plus years younger than me and are just so, so involved and so interested in this. And then there's another group of people who are older than I am, too, who are basically saying, I'm ready for change. I, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't want to feel the way I'm feeling. I want to perform better. I want to do better. Uh, but I do, I do see what you're saying, where, where people um, maybe just embrace change more easily when they're younger. But people, I mean, people who are older are generally wiser according to tradition. So, is what you're saying sort of kind of a natural process that as people become more senior at companies, they become older, they become more change resistant because they're older. I mean, is this mostly just driven by age? Honestly, I'm finding more and more, you know, as, uh, well, let's just backtrack for a moment. As the economy is changing and people are staying in jobs longer and the envelope is what is the age is changing, the age of entrepreneurs that I deal with or the people that I work with, my youngest genius entrepreneur is 17 and the old one is 70. So that's a pretty large gap in age. That particular 70-year-old is a phenomenal 70-year-old. I don't sit with him thinking I'm with a 70-year-old because every time we're talking, sparks are flying. And it's like, oh, what if we can go do that? So I think we're entering an era where we're redefining age and it's no longer the categories of 17 to 25, 25 to 35, you know, those arbitrary breakpoints. I really think that different people are who they are and they're completely different and people embrace disruption change in very different ways. And I think it's, in my opinion, it's completely unrelated to age. And as I'm, you know, as this envelope is changing, because you could basically today, if you're an entrepreneur and you have an idea and you have a thousand dollars, you're on Amazon, you're getting your infrastructure, you're rolling out your idea, right? So we're entering an era where people are able to do things without the old paradigm constraints. And so suddenly the world is learning about these people and you could have somebody designing a phenomenal game in Scandinavia or somebody in Siberia is designing a new app, right? And we don't know who those people are, what their ages are. So as, as the world evolves where possibility is available to people more readily, that breaks down the paradigms that age brought about. 
where you have to have a certain amount of experience to get to this point. Now entrepreneurs are of any age. And so it's really changing the mindset of people. Now, at the same time, I think, yes, there are very conservative um, organizations where, where maybe from, and the, in the work environment that's more prevalent, where, where you know, older ones are more resistant. But, you know, I mean, I'll be at Department of Defense, and I see the most vibrant people embracing change, and that's our largest organization that we ever have. And so this is changing, Dave. I think we're seeing a, a big change coming about where age is no longer the issue. It's people embracing the possibility and the fact that due to the economy, people aren't thinking, I should be golfing at 62. They're thinking, hmm, what's my next job at 62, right? So that's changing oh, yeah. the playing field. Oh, definitely. That, that's a, an underlying theme in the Bulletproof Executive where we're saying you actually can change your, your native intelligence. You can increase your working memory. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can increase your IQ by at least a dozen points and oftentimes mm-hmm. significantly more. And people can do that at any age. So right. what, what you're saying then is that it's much more important to look at where you fit with your comfort level around change and how comfortable you are embracing disruption. That's far more important than age. Uh, when it comes to looking at how you can interact in sort of the new economy that's coming around. Absolutely, yes. And I, and I think I would just add on to that, that it's about becoming comfortable with change and pushing yourself to embrace change, whether that's change in how you adapt to technology, because probably you're and my grandmother right now are iPad-using, Skyping people. And so, you know, that's a change, Right. So that, that generation is now completely evolving. They're embracing technology the same way that a nine-month-old now can interact with technology. And barriers for what is permissible in age are changing. So it's, it's really making people comfortable at all levels, individual, corporate, global, that change is a wonderful thing. And the worst that can ever happen if you try to disrupt is a momentary change. But you always have the choice to come back to where you were but imagine the possibility if you're willing to change something. Linda, you're talking about how these massive shifts are changing and how different age groups are beginning to interact with technology. Well, what would happen to innovation and the economy if the, or what happens when the government places regulations on what businesses can and can't do? Does that limit the ability of individuals to perhaps pursue these ideas? Does it help them? What do you think the role is there? Well, I think the government can put limitations, but I think we have now entered an era where individuals globally feel completely empowered about what it is they can do, the use of technology. And, um, you know, I, I think that this is far less an issue, in my opinion, now globally than it would have been in the past, particularly with mediums like social media where communication is occurring even in the tightest government-regulated countries, there are still ways to speak and express. I think that we're entering an era where government regulations, I'm finding less and less of them that are going to control human behavior. Well, then, if, if you're in a, let's say you're the lowest paid member in a company, so you're in an entry-level job, mm-hmm. and what kind of power then do you possess uh, in, a, in a company that's maybe less regulated and you have all these uh, sort of change-embracing abilities, what does that mean for you and your power? So, so here's an interesting paradigm. Think about that same lowest-paid individual. Before we answer that question, let's 
sort of look at that person the rest of his or her life, that person is still completely connected to the world if they choose to be. They can interact. They can evolve. They are using technology. So if you take that organization or company and we say, okay, that same person in the lowest paid position, there's a misconception that, you know, first of all, one of the paradigms that I break apart in a book is that we're going to do away over time with all these command and control layers within companies that have protected corporations the way they've been designed, right? So instead of that, really what that's doing is stifling innovation. But putting that aside for a moment, even the lowest paid person in whatever their task is, there is probably a better way that that task can be done. And when I talk to those people, and I do, I do go spend time because this is a very common question when a 200,000 person company and I'm going in their company and I'm talking and the hands go up and go, hey, I'm, the, I'm at the lowest level of the totem pole. What control do I have? If they tell me to do something, I have to do it. Fact is, there's probably a better way to do anything that you are doing. And it's a matter of the courage and the desire for the person to want to do it better. In, I don't know of any organization that thrives on stifling doing things better. Organizations are afraid of change because they're afraid of defocus. But there are still ways of doing anything that you're doing better. Because if we accept that there isn't, then we're expecting, accepting there's only one, one way to do it. And we're also accepting there's no way to make it better. So even at that level, there can be a change which then starts trickling around. And so, so that, that would be the way I would approach that, that question. So what you're saying is that companies uh, can improve themselves through the process of maybe gradual, incremental, small step improvement just by enabling pretty much everyone at every level to make small changes every day that move the company in the right direction. Absolutely. And the thing we have to remember, Dave, is that for the first time ever in the history of technology uh, and in the history of corporates and structures, We live in a world where technology is now available to anywhere, anyone, anytime. And remember the time that we used to go into our companies and, you know, all we had was the mainframe and that was our connection to the world so the company could shut off browsing and you were disconnected. Fact is, everyone today has a smart device. They are connected to the outside world. Companies recognize that. People are using apps. They're becoming interesting. They are, they're doing things. So no matter where you are in this sort of chain, you're still improving because every day in your daily life, you are using online banking. You're using your credit card. You're scanning stuff. So want it or not, you're shifting. So that inevitable shift, no matter what level of a person we're talking about, is occurring in their daily life. So corporations understand that that's coming in there's absolutely zero value in controlling or limiting what that person is going to do because they have their smart device and they're connected at any time, right? And remember that now people are connecting through mediums like social media and they're talking about things. So corporations actually have a strong vested interest to make sure that the employees are satisfied because there are a lot of channels for people to talk about. That is, uh, that's definitely true. Uh, in my in my day job, where I spend most of my time during the week, uh, I'm a vice president at an internet security company, so I, I, I deal with that intersection quite exactly. a lot. And you have a, an absolute point there that 
because people are now empowered, they can help a company perform better. And I was really struck by your incremental comment there about how that how that works because the nutritional things that we recommend for people to become higher performance on the website, it, it's not do this diet and you're wrong. It's it's a map that says every time you're sitting down, uh, here's a guide to choosing incrementally a food that's going to do more of what you want it to do to increase your personal power. Right. And you can't go wrong with a map like that. You can go left, you can go right, but the next time you sit down, you can go left or right. So it's not like I failed or I didn't fail. And, and it's an incremental improve, approach to improvement versus sort of a, an all or nothing model, which I don't think works for companies or for individuals, uh, not anymore. Correct. And I think that companies, up until about two years ago, I'd be struck when I'd be going into a very large company, you know, over 100,000 uh, people in a variety of different verticals. And uh, we would be talking about this social enterprise, the social power. And, and I would hear comments like, oh, yeah, that's Facebook. That's what they do in the background. Believe it or not, one of the biggest things we now spend time on in how are we going to use the social enterprise fabric better internally and externally. And so in a phenomenal way, this is changing how people are perceiving their daily tasks. So to go back to the first question, which is, well, if you're, if you're sort of at the lowest level and you're doing something, you're still highly connected. You still have an influence. And, and so technologically, this is a phenomenal time to be in in terms of the possibility to innovate. Okay, so you sold me on the idea that innovation is happening and that disruption is important. Uh, in fact, uh, disruptive technology has been a part of my job title for almost, like, I think almost 20 years now. Good God. And when I, so I, I definitely believe this, but I've also seen some times when, like, a lack of dissension or lack of disruption or sort of group think comes into place. And this happens in groups of people, it happens in companies. Do you have any examples of where? really negative things have come out from groupthink? I honestly don't. I have a lot of negative examples of what happens when it doesn't happen. Um, I think I shared with you Kodak as a, as a company that was phenomenal, and it decided to really not look at what's happening in the world and not um, so sort of disrupt. And I wouldn't use the word dissent because disrupt in this model, um, the way I use it is around really changing a business paradigm, experimenting with different possibilities. Um, and dissent might imply sort of uh, some sort of a negative action. But in the disruption world, um, if we take a, another example, it would be uh, RIM and BlackBerry. And, and, and the fact that RIM really chose to not really look at what's happening in the outside, right? So I was a, a nine-year avid BlackBerry customer, I had every single BlackBerry that came out, the speed, the efficiency, and eventually this year finally I had to buy an iPhone because RIM chose to not listen. And if you look at what happens in these companies that don't evolve, that don't disrupt, they will and are going out of business, right? So their business models are failing. Now, in the past, that took a much longer time because the consumer was not as involved. Today, the market is driving what happens to a company if the company does not disrupt? Because the market now speaks, connects, has power. And so more and more companies today are learning how to become attuned to listen to what the market wants. And they're realizing if we don't evolve, disrupt, the market will not be our customer. That's forcing a lot more 
disruption, Dave, than we have or seen in the past, or will, and, and this, will, this, this pace will grow dramatically over time. You mentioned earlier how you've never run into a company that thrives or that wants to stifle innovation or keep disruption from occurring. My mom is a public school teacher, and a lot of what they have to do is they have to match these standards, SOLs. And I was one, that doesn't seem like a very disruptive environment. It seems like everyone is trying to meet their standard and being tested to the exact same paradigms. And do you think that's really a in a place where disruption can occur easily, or do you think the current school systems and colleges are set up in a way that encourages critical thinking instead of lack of disruption? It's a very good question, but it's a loaded question, right? Because um, <laughs> it, there's so much that's flying through my mind to try to answer. So let me break it down into schools, as in below 12 and college. As an example, there, there are splinter groups that came out. Montessori came out, right? Montessori school system says we are going to base it on experimentation. And we want an environment that we really don't care on about the standard, standardized tests. We want to grow the child's mind. Now, of course, Montessori's are private, and you go back to the large public school systems. And of course, whenever you have a system that has to accommodate tens of millions of students, you have to have some metric that's standardized. But within even those environments, magnet schools got created, right? So you always have people that look at things and say, is this the best way to do it? That doesn't mean we have to abolish the standardized exams because unfortunately we still need something, some measure to categorize students. Are they really smart? Are they not? But we all know that, for example, an SAT score, a perfect SAT score, doesn't mean a perfect student. It means somebody that was a really good test taker. But does that mean that we can immediately come out tomorrow morning, Army and you and I decide we're going to do away with all standardized tests and we're going to come up with a new model? Unfortunately, in a system where education is not funded, where we're not really paying attention to these things, we are holding on to very old standards, right? So can it change? The answer is yes. Is it easy to do? No, because public school teachers are so badly paid that, and, and, you know, as it is, it's very difficult. And so to go to those people and say, now on top of everything, come up with a new paradigm, create a change, that's not likely. But is it impossible? No, because even within systems, we find systems that are very different. And if we look outside of the U.S., we find very different below 12 education systems. Now, if we go into the college environment, that's where we really are embracing free thinking. Because if we're talking about the students, the students have choices about which schools they go to for the most part. And when they're in those schools, they have choices about what they study. And, you know, students are the freest of the thinkers. They are, they're the free atom, right? That's out there. And so, unfortunately, what constrains them is then they have to get a particular grade and they have to get a particular degree and they choose to go into a particular job right? And so suddenly when hordes of them are going into Wall Street, they're learning, they're, they're studying those degrees to go there. But does that mean there isn't free thinking? Possibility? No, there absolutely is. And in, in my book, Provoke, there's an entire chapter on academia and my issues about the lack of involvement that students have and professors have that, you know, we, we shouldn't be really that worried about getting tenure. Frankly, if you're good, you will have it. 
we should be more concerned about doing things and, and, and schools, whether it's below 12, above 12, that's the purest form of a Petri dish. It's an experimental place. It's a place to really test things. And unfortunately, people are just going through the journey as if it's a, if it's a job and they, they go at it 10 years later, I want tenure and I want this and I want that. And that's what's killing things. So I would re evolve that question and I say, how much of this is up to us and how we're handling things versus things that are out of our control? And I would contend that it is up to us. But just like the initial part of the interview when we were talking about people's resistance to change, let's start asking the question, is it that there are constraints throughout academia or is it that people within academia are resisting change because of the consequences? So in a, in a couple of weeks, I'm giving a talk to the Thiel Foundation's 20 Under 20. This is a group of, of people who are under 20 years old who are given a grant essentially to not go to college. They're given $100,000 over two years and access to entrepreneurs like me who can advise them. Um, although I'm advising them on how to upgrade their brains rather than just entrepreneurial things. But it, it, it's one of those, those, it seems to me like a very disruptive model that says rather than going to school, use the world as your school and even disrupt education that way. Is this along the lines of what you're talking about in your book, Provoke, or is this uh, maybe it's something different? How does, how does that work with disrupting education? So to bring an example, one of the brightest engineers that I work with who works in a company is 17 and never went to college. And there's always a debate we have when we sit around with uh, guys that have MIT degrees and postdocs, and he's in the room with them, and he's thinking clearer and less constrained. Um, now, that's an unusual event, right, because this person is self-taught, so driven, that that overcomes that. So, you know, so those possibilities are definitely there. Provoke doesn't necessarily say that you have to be anti-something, it just says wherever you are, it can be done differently. So, yeah, I mean, a program that takes gifted people and gives them money and explores possibilities, magic is going to happen, right? Now, does that mean that that's what always has to happen? No, that's relative to the person receiving it because there are instances, um, and that may happen in the group you're dealing with, Dave, that it's not the matter of the money. People will get the money, but they don't know what to do with it. And then there will be those who will get it, and they'll see this as the nirvana of making, their, making the impossible become possible. So that, that opens up the whole area of entrepreneurship and, and you know, what happens when we pour money into entrepreneurship, and that's another couple of chapters in the book talking about that. But, but I think that that's an example of where, where something could happen by do, looking at things differently and, and taking these group of students. And I'm assuming this is a case where you're going to study them over time to see what happens. That would be my assumption. I think that's what the Thiel Foundation is, is looking to do and sort mm -hmm. of to track their progress and also just to uh, choose some of the best and brightest that they can find, mm -hmm. people who have already done amazing things and just say, well, if you're going to do amazing things, let us help you do the right amazing things um, okay. using you know, the arrows that we've had in our backs through lives of, of being entrepreneurs and of being mm -hmm. successful. Right. Well, so... How does this work with what you've, you've called the disruptor test? And it is something that's coming out in your book where people may ask themselves questions to figure out where they fit on that whole scale. I'm guessing that these entrepreneurs pretty much would score very high on the disruptor test, but tell our listeners a little bit more about what is that test. Well, first of all, the biggest question that comes up, whether I'm talking in a university or 
a big corporation or an environment, for example, at a conference that has people from different corporations, there is a misnomer that people think when we're talking about disruption, it implies everybody is an entrepreneur or should be an entrepreneur or that entrepreneurism is necessarily the thing we all want to be. You know, in some ways, being an entrepreneur is like a job. You could be a dentist, you could be a doctor, you're an entrepreneur. Is it for everybody? Not really. And so part of the sort of the, the clarification that I make to people, and, I, and almost I have to tell you, they get so excited by this, is that you could still disrupt without necessarily leaving your job, putting your house on mortgage, raising money because you had a dream about a, a company. That's good for some people not good for others. And so the sort of the disruptor test concept is uh, where is your appetite and your own personal desire to change whatever it is that you're doing to do it better, to do it differently, right? I mean, if you're, for instance, in HR, which is um, not necessarily a tech environment, et cetera, how could you be doing things differently that changes the way that you do things? And if you're changing and disrupting and there's positive that comes out of it, which is efficiency, you're, you're being happier about what you're doing, all of those are positive outcomes. And, and that doesn't necessarily break things down. So there's a misconception when people hear disruption that they think that it's always about breaking down everything, restarting. No, it's maybe changing the way you look at things. And there are people in any capacity that I meet that are intrigued by that and they live their lives by that, and it, in, and it motivates them. And then there are others that are very afraid of that, and hopefully by the end of the talk or the two-day session, they become very comfortable that, wow, this is almost at an early stage a thinking process. Am I willing to give myself the permission to think about what I'm doing differently? And that is the very first thing that I ask people to do. And sometimes people really stop and say, well, of course I give myself permission, and then they go, no, you're right, I'm not because I'm so afraid nobody's going to allow me. Therefore, I never take the first step. And if you go back to the original question of whether somebody in the lowest level of a company can do that, imagine if every level started doing that. And if every level started ranking higher on the disruptor capacity, then change would, be, would happen inevitably, right? Yes, and I, I think that you'd also find a, a very high-performance organization. If everyone thought about what they were doing and looked for ways to do it better, uh, even across their, their own life as well as in the company, I think what you end up with is it's people who are continuously improving themselves and continuously improving their companies at the same time. And, and it's that line between the two that are, that's really where the Bulletproof Executive blog lies that says if you improve yourself, you can improve whatever it is you're doing. You, know, you can be better at everything, whether you're an artist who's selling your own artwork uh, on display at a museum or at an, an art gallery, or whether you're you know, doing the traditional Silicon Valley or the small company startup. It doesn't really matter, but every day make decisions that are better and you can be more efficient. And so by your definition of sort of the disruptor test here, it sounds like people can even disrupt their own life, you know, when they wake up in the morning before they even go into work. Absolutely. Would you agree and with it's that? About, yeah. Absolutely, Dave. And it's about raising the bar and looking at one another to raise the bar. If you and I are interacting and I raise the expectation for myself on what I want this interaction to be, you will sense that and you will raise the bar. You will then raise that bar with somebody else that you're interacting with. 
So a lot of times I, I love athletics because there is a, a bar that you can always raise, right? So imagine a triathlon where people got there and they said, oh, I don't know, it's not having a good day. I, I don't think I'm up for this, right? What happens in the triathlon? They're there. They're going to go for it. Are they going to win? No, only one is, right? But they stimulate one another to go forward. Um, and it's not because everybody is going to win, but it's because everybody wants to achieve that very high bar. I believe that humans have enormous capacity. And what's happened in the structure of academia, entrepreneurism, corporations, government, we have brought in so many systems of control that we've taken away that power. So I fundamentally believe that probably there's an 80% higher intellectual capacity that people have that they're just not expressing. I don't believe that it's that they don't have because they're at a lower part of the job. I believe they have, but we haven't learned how to capture that and use it properly. I think that's, that's very well said. Linda, you mentioned that you just became a certified yoga teacher where you spent 31 days with 18 hours a day of focusing on yoga and obviously exercising the things that go with yoga, the, the meditative side of things, right in the middle of being a powerful consultant and right before publishing a book. Can you tell our readers why you would make a decision like that? Absolutely. So I've been you know, an avid yoga practitioner, uh, particularly power yoga, for a number of years and and I really needed to sort of take it up to the next level and, in fact, write. It was exactly in the middle of writing the book where I just needed that, you know, clear my mind to be able to think clearly about what's going on. So I got my power yoga certification, but in particular hot power, which is effectively uh, 90 minutes in 100 and, between 108 to 112 degrees and our Training was grueling, but it also required learning Sanskrit and learning uh, a lot of different things. And so the 18-hour days were comprised of very demanding physical activity, as well as then having to learn a new language, deciphering sort of the sutras and understanding the common, you know, what is really going on, completing that with uh, fairly extensive and difficult exams, and then going through your practicals. And, and what it did, it just completely cleared my mind. I needed to get away. And during that process, you don't have any phones. You're not connected. And uh, you're really focused on something very different. And, you know, there is a famous uh, sutra which says, Chiti Vritti Nirodaha, which is in Sanskrit means uh, yoga begins when the fluctuations of the mind stop. Um, and, and we live in a world where we are in 99% fluctuation and 1% thinking. And it was really an opportunity to be in a very quiet mental space, pushing the physical boundaries of the body to achieve what you didn't think you could do. And, and you know, sort of pushing that along with a group of people that were all, we all came from very different walks of life. And when it was completed, I really had a lot more clarity and uh, I think we were able to do the latter part of the book. I mean, it, the, it became enormously cleaner after that and faster and with a lot more clarity and vision. And so that was what it was about. And now teaching is a key uh, thing for me to do because it's now about the passion of transferring this, but not necessarily just the physical aspects of the teaching, but really helping people reach that level of mental calmness so that they can begin to whatever else they're doing much better. 
I, I love your description there. Uh, I advise uh, people that I work with uh, as a mentor uh, to take up yoga or to use other techniques to help to, to calm their mind and to, to deal with stress because so many people are are basically letting their mind get in their way because they just don't have control of their brain. I went through a similar process uh, when I was writing my book. Uh, this is a book about nutrition and about uh, stress and about personal performance and mm-hmm. even about uh, it's it's targeted towards pregnant women about how to have healthier, higher intelligence babies. What I did during that was I did a, a more biohacker focused seven day retreat hooked up to an EEG machine. Uh, actually, an $11 million research EEG machine that let me do the equivalent of 40 years of Zen meditation in seven days. So I could learn to clear my mind in an, in a, a way that normally takes almost a lifetime to learn. And it's been really amazing because I sat down right right in the last day of that and I wrote the entire entire outline for the book and right. just in my notepad from one end to the other. And that's the, what we're publishing. Right. So, yeah. Once you get out of your own way, it's amazing what you can do. And I, I find it really intriguing that you chose a similar path in order to also help your own mind focus and get clear. I think, I, I think key- Dave, you just um, hit on a very critical the sentence, which you know it really deserves a moment of conversation, which is uh, a book you and I ought to write together, which is called How Do You Get Out of Your Own Way? Uh, <laughs> because that is, in fact, the whole core of the problem. It, is, it isn't uh, when the questions came up about how do you disrupt if you're not in an environment you can disrupt? How do you do this when this is not possible? Truth of the matter, it is it's all about you and what you have in front of you, whether it's physical things you want to achieve, whether it's um, anything. It is we who are in our own way. And, and it's a brilliant topic of a book you and I need to write together because once we learn how to remove ourselves, from our own way is when everything happens. And disruption is right now stifled, whether we're talking about education, innovation, companies, government, everything is stifled because of how people, the limitations they put in front of themselves, not about limitations that fundamentally exist. Now, granted, it takes us reading a lot of books, which probably you and I have, to learn how to remove ourselves. But, but that is the passion of yoga, is helping people realize that one step at a time. Uh, it, it is indeed, and it, it applies so much more than people realize to, to ultra-successful people. I sat in a room I, I've done for quite a while, um, breathing exercises, Mm-hmm. And uh, one's called Art of Living. And I've done them in, in rooms full of people whose net worth certainly exceeds, you know, $50 million. People who have been incredibly su- successful entrepreneurs over and over and over. Had a hard time breathing. <laughs> yeah, well, they're all there because they recognize yeah. that, that taking some time yeah. to work on the hardware of their body through breathing was actually affecting the software, their brain, and that it was making them better people and better entrepreneurs. And that's mm-hmm. one of the techniques that we talk about on the blog and obviously something that you just spent a lot of time on over the mm-hmm. course of your training in yoga. But I, I think it's key to being able to disrupt and being able to create and innovate to be able to, like you said, get out of your own way. Well, I'm really glad that, that we got to, to talk about this as part of the interview, and I can't wait to read your new book, Provoke. Absolutely. So they can find me by www.lindabernardi.com, L-I-N-D-A-B-E-R-N-A-R-D-I.com. My book, Provoke, uh, comes out on Amazon November 3rd in paperback, 
And a few days later, I think right around that time, an ebook on Amazon, then Apple, Sony, Barnes and Noble. And uh, whether it's the ebook or the paperback, absolutely, I encourage um, people to read because I'm hoping what will happen is, uh, without a doubt, at the beginning, they will be very uncomfortable. I'm hoping they will sustain through and, and they will be highly entertained as they read it. But it's also a very critical way of looking at all the components that play in going from disruption to innovation. And I want you know, people to, particularly at a time now where we're looking at things like Groupon going for an IPO, and I want people to look at that and say, does that make sense? Is that really you know, innovation? Is that disruption to innovation? Is that financial model making sense? And, and you know, I just want people to be part of the dialogue and they're invited to become members of the culture of disruption. In fact, when they get their book, there'll be a membership card in there. And the many talks that I give, people get membership cards. I invite people to buy blogs, to communicate, and become part of what I hope will make us better as a society. Well, that's a great goal and one that I very much support. Linda, thank you so much for spending time with us today here on the Upgrade Self Radio. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Linda. Thank you. You can find links to everything we talked about in the show notes which will be posted at bulletproofexec.com. If you enjoyed this, you can help us by leaving a positive ranking on iTunes. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's show. Take care. We'll see you soon. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.